Welcome to the Enemy of the Surveillance State podcast, where we talk about news, tips, and open source tools to help you protect your privacy in an age of mass digital surveillance. I'm your host, C. Mitchell Shaw, and this week we're going to be discussing the question, so what? Why does it matter? I mean, they're reading my emails and texts, they're listening to my phone calls, harvesting my browsing history, my calendars, my maps, my GPS location. They know everywhere I've been, who I've been with, what I've been doing, and what I've said. But hey, as long as I don't have anything to hide, why should I care? Let's talk about that. So it has been almost seven years since Ed Snowden revealed to the world what many of us had already long suspected. Our government is spying on all of us. And nosy corporations are spying on all of us. But seven years later, people are still asking the question, so what? Why should I care? I mean, I don't have anything to hide. Well, one reason you should care is that future generations are going to inherit the policies that come from our attitude toward these things. Our silence becomes acceptance, which then becomes approval in the eyes of both politicians and the next generation of Americans. And since policymakers are still defining the idea of digital liberty rights, the stands that we take today are going to impact the future in ways we can't even really begin to understand. Can you imagine the world that would exist today if our founding fathers had taken that same attitude toward the tyranny of their day? Thankfully, they understood that whether or not I have anything to hide, privacy is a major part of liberty, and that is why they wrote the Fourth Amendment. Besides, the question is not really what I have to hide, but what I have that is worth protecting. It's why we have curtains and blinds on our windows. It's why we use envelopes for our letters, because we know, deep down, that our private lives are private and should stay private. Why would we treat our digital privacy any differently? Think about what happens when you need to do an internet search for an embarrassing medical question or that private intimate text between you and your spouse. What about that phone call where you argue with your spouse? We step away from the crowd when that happens because we don't want that to be overheard. We know that that is private and we want it to stay private. So let's let's take a look at how all of this sort of fits together in the big picture. Data mining is a big problem. Data mining and data analysis, big, big problems. And basically what that is, is the ability for government agencies or corporations to vacuum up huge amounts of personal information on each of us, dump it into major databases all across the world, and then sift through that, boil it down to its broth, and create startlingly accurate profiles of each of us. A good example would be grocery store loyalty cards. So here on the East Coast, we've got Kroger grocery stores. We've also got Food Lion and a few others. In your areas, you may have something different. But they all do this pretty much the same. So if you want to save 20 cents off of a loaf of bread or 15 cents off of a can of corn, uh, you have to have their loyalty card. They don't just have sales anymore. Now it is, this is the price, and then this is the price with the card. So you fill out the the application for the card. You give them your name, your phone number, your email address. Big deal, right? They know my name. They know my phone number. They know my email address. And now every time I use the card, I save a few cents. And if you 
Uh, with Kroger, you get fuel points, and those add up depending on how much you spend in the in the store every week or every month or every year, and you bank that up, you can save 20, 30 cents off a gallon of gas. Well, a story coming out of California right after the passage of the Privacy Act there sort of illustrates just how much information these grocery stores are able to gather about us. And this is just grocery stores, okay? So like I say, here on the East Coast, we have Kroger grocery stores. On the West Coast, Kroger owns a chain of grocery stores out there as a subsidiary called Ralph's, Ralph's Supermarkets. So in an attempt to be in compliance with the new Privacy Act there, Ralph's released a statement to customers. They posted this all over their grocery stores in a form that they taped to the windows, the doors uh, throughout the stores so that customers would see it, explaining the information that Ralph may be able to collect from them, including, quote, your level of education type of employment, uh, information about your health and information about insurance coverage you may carry, financial and payment information like your bank account, credit and debit card numbers, and your credit history, end quote. It also included behavioral information, such as, quote, your purchase and transaction histories and geolocation data, using the ability to track them on their smartphones. Okay. Ralph's also says that they reserve the right to go after information about what you do online and says that it will make inferences about your interests based on analysis of other information we have collected. So already you can see they would know a lot more about you than your mobile phone number that you gave them, your email address that you gave them, your name and your address. They can know where you're going they're able to take a look at everything you purchase in their stores. They make inferences about other information that they gather on you. Why are they doing this? Why are they doing this? Is this so that they can send you uh, a sale on uh, you know, chicken when it goes on sale next week? Well, that's part of it. Another big part of it is that they have another subsidiary. Uh, the Kroger chain uh, owns, besides Ralph's grocery stores or Ralph's supermarkets, they own a company called 84.51. Now, this is out of a report uh, in the Los Angeles Times uh, last week or the week before. Okay, and uh, that company, 84.51, the entire purpose of that company is to use customer data as a business resource. Their chief executive, Stuart Aitken, said, simply put, data is our most valuable asset. So Kroger isn't just making money selling you a loaf of bread and a six-pack of beer. When you buy that loaf of bread and that six-pack of beer, they're harvesting personal information about you, and they're using that as a business asset to make even more money by selling your data. So how much data can they really gather? I mean, fine, they know that I bought a loaf of bread. They know I bought a six-pack of beer or two. They know, that, uh, they know what brand of cigarette you smoke. But is that really that big of a deal? Well, a story from 2012 involving, involving Target department stores kind of shows that it can be a lot bigger deal than them just knowing what brand of cigarette you like to smoke or what your favorite beer is or how often you buy a loaf of bread or a box of cereal. So in 2012, there was a report of a teenage daughter's father going into a store just outside Minneapolis, Minnesota, a Target. Now, if you've ever shopped at a Target, and I imagine you have, um, you have probably been asked at the register if you'd like to use the red card. And if you don't have the red card, they will ask you if you want to get the red card. This is a little more than just a loyalty card 
When Target first introduced the red card, they introduced it as a credit card. But if you're like me and you say, no, 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 thanks, I've already got enough plastic in my wallet, they realized that they needed to do something else to get more people to adopt this. So they reintroduced the red card as a debit card that is tied directly to your checking account and can only be used to purchase items at their stores or on their website. And every time you use the card, they knock 5% off your purchase and there's no annual fee, no monthly fees, no interest. It's a debit card. It's tied directly to your checking account. So the first question I ask is, cui bono? Who benefits? Why would they adopt all of the expense, all of the hassle of maintaining that infrastructure, all of the billing, everything that goes into maintaining that card, and then knock 5% off of every purchase when they're not even charging me a fee to use the card? Well, the answer is simple, data mining and data analysis. If you go into Target tomorrow and use cash for your purchase, and next week you go in and you use a credit card, and the next time you go in, you use a debit card, they have no way to tie all of those purchases together into a single profile to say, this is this person. But if you're using the red card every time so that you can knock 5% off your purchase, they've absolutely got that ability. And Target has an algorithm that they use to crunch that data that is so good at what it does that it is frightening. They say that they can actually predict your future purchases before you even know that you might want to make those future purchases. The idea is that a week before you even realize you're gonna be thinking about a new big screen TV, they know you're gonna be thinking about a new big screen TV. And right at the time when you're thinking about it, you open up your mailbox and there's an advertisement for a new big screen TV at a discounted price. But how accurate is it? Can they actually predict purchases? So this father walks into the store outside Minneapolis, slaps a flyer, an advertisement down on the counter and demands to see the manager. It is an ad for baby diapers, baby formula, baby food, baby clothes, toys, maternity clothes, that kind of stuff. So the father says to the manager, hey, you just sent this to my 16-year-old daughter. She's still in high school. What are you guys trying to encourage teenagers to start having babies? The manager says that he will look into it he apologizes, tells the father he'll look into it and get back with him in a couple of days. The next day, that father called the department store and asked for the manager and apologized to him. He said he had had a conversation with his daughter the previous night and had determined that she was indeed pregnant and that Target had figured it out before her own father did. So how did Target do that? Well, knowing what I know about data mining and data analysis, it's as simple as this. Every month, that young lady buys feminine products for her time of the month. And this month, she didn't. But this month, she started taking a multivitamin, and she's never done that before. Or this month, she bought collagen lotion, and she's never done that before. And this month, her pant size went up one inch, and the algorithm went one plus one plus one equals she's pregnant, send the ads. Now, if Target was able to accurately predict a teenage pregnancy based only on subtle changes in purchasing habits at their stores, you need to ask yourself this question. What could be known by compiling and analyzing all of the data on all of the purchases, emails, texts, phone calls, travel, browsing history, calendar entries, and more on everyone? 
The answer to that question is both important and startling. Important because that degree of data mining and data analysis is real and is happening every day. Startling because it means that those who conduct the mining and analysis know everything there is to know about the people whose data they collect and analyze. In fact, since data analysis uses cold hard math instead of emotion to arrive at conclusions, those who use it know the subjects of their surveillance better than those people know themselves. Now, maybe you're a better person than I am, but I suspect that we all lie to ourselves about our inmost motives. I always think that my motives are perfectly pure. We make excuses for the decisions that we make. Oh, that's not like me. That was out of the ordinary. But algorithms don't lie and they don't make excuses. They have no agenda. They're just math problems looking at the data and telling the user what it means. And so, because they can know your habits, because the NSA is able to surveil everyone and vacuum this information up on everyone, they can know so much more than Target or Ralph's or Kroger can know about you. Because they know your habits, your calendar, your maps, your contacts, your emails, your texts, the content of your phone calls, because they can know all of that about you and all of that about your friends and all of that about your friends' friends, they are already likely to know that next week you're going to get a phone call, a text, an email, or a Facebook message from someone you've not spoken to in years, say an old college buddy. He's going to call or message you in some way to let you know he's passing through town and would like to meet you for a cup of coffee. They already know that you're going to say yes. They know when and where you will meet. They know what you're going to order. They know how you're going to pay for it. They know the, fr the question your friend is going to ask you, and they know your answer. Does that sound crazy to you? Well, let's listen to what Ed Snowden had to say about it in a 2014 interview with Brian Williams as part of a special edition news report called Inside the Mind of Edward Snowden. When I think about an instance that, that really just struck me as we can do this and that we can do it to anyone was that people at NSA analysts can actually watch people's internet communications, watch them draft correspondence and actually watch their thoughts form as they type. As you write a message, you know, an analyst at the NSA or any other service out there that's using this kind of attack against people can actually see you write sentences in the backspace over your mistakes and then change the words and then kind of pause and, and, and think about what you wanted to say and then change it. And it's this extraordinary intrusion, not just into your communications, your finished messages, but your actual drafting process into the way you think. A look into the way you think. This is the closest thing to mind reading that has ever existed. Because of programs like PRISM, XKeyScore, Boundless Informant, and others, the NSA has been for years vacuuming up all of our data. Now, fine, they've abandoned some of these programs because Snowden brought them to light, but I am not naive enough to believe that they've not simply replaced them with programs that haven't been reported on yet. Old dogs really don't learn new tricks. And so they're vacuuming up 
all of this information about us. And because they can watch that in real time, okay, because they have the ability to save that and play it back in real time and know that you typed out a clause and then you paused for 4.3 seconds, you realized, I don't really like that last clause I typed out. So you backspace over it. You pause for 1.7 seconds and then you begin to type out a new clause. Using psychological profiling techniques, they're able to not just know what you wrote. Let me say this. It would be bad enough that they know the finished product. That is already a bridge too far. This is far worse than that because this allows them to use a psychological profiling technique to not know just what you wrote, but why you wrote it, how you processed your thoughts, how you thought when you wrote it. Now, when I say that they can do this real time, here's what I mean. Gone are the days of some fedora-wearing, trench coat-wearing, cigar-smoking guy hiding out in a basement somewhere with earphones on, listening to what's happening. This is way worse than that. Because with this, they're able to just suck up all of this data on everyone, store it in databases all over the world, and then if they ever you come to their attention for any reason at all, and they just decide to take a harder look at you five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, tomorrow, they can just pull up those files and go through them in real time and apply these techniques to figure out who you are. So if you ever come to their attention or if a new administration ever decides to focus on a new thought crime, you could find yourself the subject of intense surveillance and psychological analysis. They are not just harvesting your data, remember, they're harvesting everyone else's as well. Unless, now, the, the one caveat here, the one thing that may sort of help to ameliorate that is if you're using a privacy-protecting service like ProtonMail, uh, then you ameliorate that to some degree. However, if you're using internet-based services that are unprotected and unencrypted, Think Google Docs, Gmail, Facebook, and you're typing out live on the internet. Realize that's not happening on your computer. When you draft a Gmail, uh, e an email to someone using Gmail, you're not doing that on your computer. Your computer is just handling the front end. That's actually happening on Google's servers. It is a web-based email program. Every keystroke is part of that data stream that goes into creating this startlingly accurate profile of who you are, what you believe, and even how you think. So I mentioned Facebook. There was a report a couple of years ago. Facebook had uh, revealed that they had hung on to deleted and unpublished Facebook posts. So we've all done this. You're typing something out on Facebook and you've written this post. And before you hit the trigger, you decide, no, nah, you know, I really don't like that. I don't want to post that. So you just delete it. You never post it. Well, Facebook hangs on to that and they hang on to all of them. And then they go back through them and they look at them from a psychological perspective to figure out, here's the way they put it, why people are, quote, self-censoring, end quote, themselves. Okay. So self-censoring themselves and their posts because they compare what you posted to what you didn't post, what you posted right before you chose not to post that, what you posted right after you chose not to post that.
and what that probably means about how you think. Okay. So the, one of the big lies here, one of the big lies, just shifting gears for a moment, one of the big lies that the NSA tells us, the NSA and other government agencies tell us is that they claim they're just going after terrorists. The reality is they get to make up their own rules and their own rules allow them two to three hops to a terrorist. So what that means about you is if you've ever known somebody who knows somebody who ever in their life answered a Craigslist ad from somebody who was suspected of being a terrorist, you are within three hops of a suspected terrorist and you are likely on a list of people who are being surveilled and they can go back and pull up data on you from any time they want to now or in the future because this data is being stored in perpetuity. Another big lie that they tell us is that they're only looking at metadata. They claim that they're not looking at the contents of emails, texts, and phone calls. That's not true. There have been report after report after report showing that they are indeed looking at the content of these things. Government employees have been caught doing it for their own purposes. So we know that they're capturing that content. But even if we believed the lie that it's just about metadata, it would be too bad. It would be bad enough because metadata can actually tell much more about the communication than sometimes the, the contents of the communication tell. So metadata is the data about the data. It's not the data itself. So the metadata for an email is not the content of the email. Hey, Joe, let's have lunch on Thursday. The metadata for an email is the email address it was sent from, the email address it was sent to, when it was sent, and how large the file is. So whether there's an attachment or something like that. And that doesn't seem like it could reveal an awful lot, but I'll tell you, there was a story from November of 2010 in Kansas City, Kansas City's 41 Action News, KSHB-TV, did a special report on the EXIF data, which is some of the metadata that can be found in digital pictures, particularly um, there's more EXIF data if that picture is taken with a mobile phone than if it's taken with a dedicated digital camera. So that metadata on a mobile phone would include things like the time of day the picture was taken, the date the picture was taken, you know, what was the shutter speed for the camera, the geolocation using the GPS coordinates, where was the picture taken. You start adding all of these things together and it becomes kind of a big deal. So what they did to prove their point was they gave a smartphone to a female staffer and told her, just go home and live your life. So she did. She went home and she took pictures of a little girl as she's tucking her into bed. You know, they she made phone calls and texts. They went to the park. She took pictures of a little girl on the swings and on the slide. Again, no big deal, right? Well, then they brought in a data security expert to show her the risks that she was taking. And what he did was he visited her Facebook profile on a computer, downloaded those pictures, and was able to show her the things that we just talked about. He was able to show her that they could see the GPS coordinates of the park where she plays with a little girl, the GPS coordinates of not just her house, but he was able to zoom in and show her what corner of the house her little girl's bedroom was in. Here, let's listen to that sound file. Perfect, just like that. Ready, one, two, three. 
Good girl. We gave NBC Action News staffer Suzanne McDonald and daughter Lainey a smartphone. And a big smile towards mommy's face. Yeah. To see just how threatening a seemingly innocent snapshot Beautiful. could be once loaded online. That is legitimately terrifying. So we right-click, then we hit that data file. Mm, that's the program. Remember Lainey? We used the technique to map her bedroom. Scary. Like, terrifying. We found not only Lainey's home, but located her daycare, favorite fast food shop, and right down to the specific part of the park where she plays. Especially as a parent, because the fact that you can see the exact place of it. That you could see the exact place of it. Yeah, that is frightening. Because here's what somebody could determine from those pictures. They can determine from those pictures because her daughter is wearing different clothes each time you see her at the park. So in this set of pictures, she's in a blue jumper. And in that set of pictures, she's in red shorts and a blue t-shirt. Okay, so we know that these pictures are not all taken on the same day. So download the pictures, look at the EXIF data, and realize the dates on the photos. It could be determined that on Tuesdays, every Tuesday, between 1 and 2.30, she takes her daughter to that same park. Now, somebody with nefarious purposes realizes he just needs to be at the park a little before 1 o'clock, and about 1.45, he needs to distract mom for a moment, and she'll never see her daughter again. Now, if that's not frightening, I don't know what is. Still think metadata is no big deal? Remember, it is not ever about what you have to hide. It's about what you have that's worth protecting. And the problem is not just the NSA, etc., but what I like to call the culture of surveillance and surveillance as a feature in the incestuous relationship between companies like Facebook, Google, Amazon, and others with the surveillance state. Because the surveillance state will always take the shortest path to your data. And if you're providing them that short path through Facebook, Google, Amazon, or other companies, then they're going to take that shortest path. Maybe the strongest argument against the surveillance state is that a police state requires a surveillance state. History is full of examples. The Nazis, the Soviet Union, other nation states that became security states spying on their own citizens. Friends spying on each other and reporting. Neighbors were spying, spying on each other and reporting. Co-workers were uh, spying on each other and reporting. Children spying on their parents and reporting back at school about what mom and dad were talking about and what goes on in the house. Today, none of that is necessary. Today, we stand in line and pay obscene amounts of money for pieces of technology that we bring into our homes and carry on our bodies every day that do that surveillance for the surveillance state. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not anti-tech. I've always loved technology. I was that guy in the early 1980s, uh, the year I turned 11 or 12, everybody I knew got a digital watch for Christmas and they had like video games on. I remember those Pac-Man and Galaga right there on your, on your digital watch. And so I was the kid that had an enough of a love of and understanding of technology 
that during recess, kids are standing in line in front of me to hand me their watches for me to set their watches up for them and hand them back. I'd come over to your house and your VCR is still flashing 12, eight months after you bought the VCR. And so I would program your VCR so that the clock was right. And then you could record your programs while you were away. I've always loved technology. I'm sure I always will. But I recognize that it is a double-edged sword and we have to handle it carefully and make sure we're protecting ourselves. So it's important to remember that the police state with a full surveillance state capability is not coming. It's already here. And private citizens are purchasing and installing the devices that are being used to empower it. A good example is the Amazon Ring smart doorbell. In September 2019, there were reports that Ring had partnered with more than 400 police departments across the nation to create what they call the Neighbors Active Law Enforcement Map. These always connected spy cams, because they're internet connected, are accessible by Amazon employees and the police. They capture all the comings and goings of these houses, of you, your friends, your family, and anyone else within the range and view of the cameras. The only kicker? You simply agree to this in the name of fighting crime. Facebook has been shown to be harvesting data from users outside of Facebook, tracking you across the web using tracking pixels, cookies, super cookies, even if you've never had a Facebook account and have never agreed to their terms of service. And of course, Google does the same. In fact, according to patents that came out in November of 2018, Google is preparing to take surveillance as a feature to a whole new level with devices that would be placed in every room of users' homes to watch, listen, and analyze every word and action. It's important to remember, look, Google is not a search engine. Google is a surveillance, data mining, and data analysis company masquerading as a search engine. They have built a net value of hundreds of billions of dollars by offering free services, email, calendar, address book, YouTube, things like that. The, most of this company's money, most of Google's company, has been made by gathering personal data on its more than 1 billion users and leveraging that data into advertising revenues. Now, to be fair, no one does what Google does better than Google does it. I love the convenience of, an, the, at least the idea of the convenience of full app integration. You send someone an email and say, hey man, let's get together for lunch on Tuesday. He emails you back and says, yeah, let's do it at uh, you know Joe's Bar and Grill at one o'clock. And then the next thing you know, because that integrates automatically to your calendar, that appointment's already in there. You open up that calendar entry and there's, there's your friend's contact number. You just click it and it calls him. There's the GPS coordinates for Joe's Bar and Grill already as part of the appointment. Everything's ready to go for you. It is awfully, awfully convenient, but that convenience is not worth the price of privacy because your device, again, only handles the front end of that. All of the back end of it is being handled by Google servers where you have no control over it. These new patents, however, would take that to a whole new level. PJ Media reported at the time that these patents tell us Google is developing smart home products that are capable of eavesdropping on us through our home in order to learn more about us and better target us with advertising. They say it goes much further than the current Google Home speaker promoted to answer questions and provide useful information and the Google-owned Nest thermostat that measures environmental conditions in our homes. What the patents describe are sensors and cameras mounted in every room to follow us and analyze what we are doing throughout our home. 
They describe how the cameras can even recognize the image of a movie star on a resident's t-shirt, connect that to that person's browsing history, and then send that person an ad for a new movie the star would be in. Okay. So one of the paragraphs in this, it's 258 paragraphs to this one patent. Paragraph 0004 states, as society advances, households within the society may become increasingly diverse, having varied household norms, procedures, and rules. Unfortunately, because so-called smart devices have traditionally been designed with predetermined tasks and or functionalities, comparatively few advances have been made regarding using these devices in diverse or evolving households or in the context of diverse or evolving household norms, procedures, and rules. Let's stop right there and ask yourself a question. Do I really want Google to know my household norms, procedures, and rules? Not if I value privacy, I don't. And while you're answering that question, ask yourself this one. If your physical property were being stolen from you, would it matter to you at all whether that thief was wearing a mask, a corporate uniform, or a badge? No? Why would you treat your digital property, the data about you, any differently? So as both nosy corporations and overreaching government agencies continue to spy on us for their own purposes, we can actually only expect this problem to get worse. Given all of this, it's easy to see this is a serious problem and that it is both a political slash legal problem and a technological problem. So on the political slash legal end, we need to be bringing pressure to bear on our elected officials to pass legislation similar to California's um, Privacy Act to protect our privacy from this type of harvesting. But I suspect that that will be too little too late. Going on bended knee before the man to ask him to loosen the chains on our necks that he helped place there in an effort to build the surveillance state is not likely to be a winning proposition. So on the technological side, we need to use the tools at our disposal. Technology is an equal opportunity thing, okay? A piece of technology doesn't care if it's being used to spy on you or to protect you from other people spying on you. And there are open source tools, the type of open source tools that Ed Snowden used when he spoke to journalists, and those tools protected him. We're going to be discussing some of those technological solutions in coming episodes, so make sure to subscribe and share this podcast with friends and family so they can learn how to protect privacy as well. And remember, the next time somebody asks you, so what? Why should I care? I don't have anything to hide. The answer is, yeah, but do you have anything that's worth protecting? Email questions, comments, and suggestions to enemyofsurveillance at protonmail.com. This is C. Mitchell Shaw. Thanks for listening to Enemy of the Surveillance State, and I'll see you next week.